Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's new study, What Does Spirituality Mean to Us?, reveals how spirituality informs our understanding of ourselves and each other and inspires us to take action for the common good. Explore these findings and more at spiritualitystudy.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with the groundbreaking forest ecologist Suzanne Samard. There is, as always, a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Hello. Hi, Julie. Hi. No, this is Suzanne. This is Krista Tippett. Oh, hi, Krista. I just joined. Hi. Hi. <laughs> so happy to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. In this way, in this disembodied but but interesting way to join our voices. <laughs> to converse. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, how are we? Zach, are you... Yeah? Okay. Okay. No, it's been a while. Okay. Yes, it is. Okay, yeah, it is. It's near me. Well, again, welcome. Um, I've been following your work. I think I think I may have first heard about you a couple of years ago when I interviewed Robert McFarlane. Mm, yes. um, you know him from the UK. He's written um, the book. Yes, I've I've read his book. <laughs> yeah, I think I think he talked to me, and then I and then I just started to see your work and your science and and your book appear. So I'm really glad to finally be sitting with you. Well, thank you for having me. Um, so let yeah let's just dive in. Um, you you like to say that you grew up you grew up in British Columbia. You like to say you grew up in a province of old growth forests. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder as you as you speak that and you feel in your body that presence that old growth forest as you were a child growing up in it. You know what what did that mean? I mean how did, how did you experience it then? Well, it was all I knew. <laughs> um, of course, we would go away from the old growth forest, and then I would think, "Oh, I've got to get back," um, because it was—it's in my blood and bones and DNA. You know, mm-hmm. my ancestors for many generations lived in these inland rainforests, um, and you know, it just—it's just the way we were. And so, I guess when I went away, so um, into the drier areas, for example, where there's grasslands, um, I thought they were beautiful too. But I always wanted to get back and felt so much at home when I was among the big old trees. Um, So yeah, it was just, it was just the way we were. Yeah. There's a line, I think this is in your book, where you say, you remember kind of laying on the forest floor and looking up at the giant tree crowns. And you said, my grandfather was a horse logger 
And he was a giant, too. And I was just curious, was he actually very large, or was that just his presence? It was his presence. He was, Mm -hmm. yeah, he was a giant presence. But when I was a child, so, you know, he would have been in his 50s and 60s and onward. And he, at that point, had, he he was a six-foot-tall man, but he had, his back was broken in a logging accident. A a tree fell on him. And so... Mm -hmm. As a child, I knew him. He was hunched over, um, in, and he he eventually was only you know five six or five seven. This little hunched over man, but he was his character, his wisdom, you know, his presence was huge to me, mm-hmm. to all of us. Mm-hmm. And there is this moment you describe with your grandfather when you had this glimpse of what you say called a palette of roots and soil, and you saw that this was the foundation of the forest. And, and I wonder if, if you trace, I mean, years later, if, and first of all, you would spend a little time in a more, I don't know if you'd, no, you were probably doing more traditional logging with your family, but a more modern logging industry, um, and you became a scientist to study that. I mean, I wonder if do, do that 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 thing you saw, the, this foundation of the forest. It seems to me that, in some ways, you ended up pursuing that glimpse um, in in what you did later as a scientist. Yeah, you know who I who I was, how I grew up. You know, being among the trees, and of course, as a child, spending a lot of time on the forest floor um, because yeah. that's where you are. You're small, and building forts with my brother and sister, and rafts that we would take on the lake, and you know. Um, it was just, it was these, the roots and the connection in the forest was just like, a, it was just one of us, right? We just, yeah. we just knew it that way. Um, and then, of course, when I, I did, you're right, I did become a scientist and I, uh, a forest scientist eventually, and I embarked on, well, I started out with an undergraduate degree thinking I wanted to be just a forester because I loved you know, I loved forestry. My grandfather was a horse logger, and yeah. uh, and I loved what he did, and I wanted to be part of that. But what I entered into was a much different uh, worldview and way of treating the forest, which was really not about caring for the forest. It was more about exploiting the forest. Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean, I think it's worth it, – it's so interesting to, to, to delve into your work and to understand – that there, that there was a mindset about how the forest worked, which actually reflects the mindset we've had in, in many of the ways our society has been constructed, um, of kind of a logic of competition um, and of struggle and of exploitation, and that that had kind of made its way into forestry management. And then you came along a quarter century ago, ago. Um, and you were in a lineage of other scientists. And I want to talk about that because I feel like other people don't, they, you know, you're, you're also part of an ecosystem in a way that isn't acknowledged. Um, but you kind of, you grew initially, just correct me if this is wrong, 80 replicates of three species, paper birch, Douglas fir, western red cedar. And through science, you, you, you were able to say that the forest behaves as though it is a single organism. And that really was a new formulation for science or for western civilization Mm -hmm. yeah what and just how would you begin to describe 
what what you meant what is what is what is contained in that statement that the force behaves as though it is a single organism and, and how is that a new way of formulating it well you know as as we talked about about growing up in the forest and me being part of it and um the you know the trees are you know they grow next to each other for hundreds of years the roots overlapping plants in and on and around them um and the fungi and bacteria and the whole system is interrelated it's all connected I, I that's how i grew up knowing the forest yeah. and and so it was unnatural for me to to come into the forest industry and see this connected place through forest practices based on what you, you know, as you aptly say, competition, um, you know, the whole forest practices was about managing competition. And right, that, so that they would, they would feel that some trees would compete with other trees, so they would, so they would, uh, I mean, that's, that's how that was very simplistically um, interpreted. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Um, uh-huh. So, you know, and that really came out of our understanding of, of it really got going, you know, with evolutionary theory where, yeah. um, you know, Darwinianism is about, you know, natural selection and survival of the fittest. And and even though he might not have thought completely uh, parochially about it that way, but but that, that idea of competition is shaping evolution and then ecology as well. Uh, it just yeah. kind of got transmitted over to that other discipline. That was the p- underpinning of this idea that forests are structured by competition. And yeah, mm-hmm. it's competition mainly that we are focused they were focused, the foresters, on competition for light. So the idea that if ah. one tree would overtop another and cast a shadow, that would deprive that, you know, tr- slower growing tree, you know, which happened to be mostly the conifers that, in, at least in Western North America, that we so focus on for the industry, um, yeah. you know, that was like depriving them of their ability to grow oh, big I and tall. See. Right. But that wasn't true, right? That's what you found. It just wasn't true. Yeah, and you know, it, it was it, it was it's part of the picture, but it's not the whole picture. And and you know, um, and I think that even as we as we investigate how trees interact and, and um, relate to one another, we'll find out. I think that even you know, collaboration and competition are, you know, also part of a narrow way of seeing how these trees. Uh, interact right they're 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 sophisticated they have many ways of of relating to one another and so they should i mean they live you know by side by side as i said for hundreds of years they they need to be in relationships it's just also so interesting i mean i've i've been reading your book but somehow what you just said i didn't understand that that's where the competition was it was a competition for sunlight which is a very linear way of looking at what we can see right yeah, but what right. you're talking about is all these other ways that that the forest um, and that trees nourish themselves and each other and find sustenance and are vital um, uh, and stay healthy aside from just getting the sunlight that mm-hmm. we can see for coming for down from above. Yeah, and uh, just to, just a little addendum to that, you know, yeah. of course, in um, you know, foresters were very much focused on light, and that led to a whole bunch of policy development and practices. But they also understood competition could happen for water and nutrients depending on the kind of ecosystem but nevertheless it was all about you know getting you know getting rid of that competition or reducing it so these conifer crop trees these marketable trees could become mm-hmm. bigger and, and and then harvestable for 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 profit in the future right um it's so interesting too because one of the things that you started to 
really pay attention to and illuminate uh, are the fungi um, uh, and that the uh, mycorrhiza, Mm -hmm. um, which probably is, is is this what you saw with your grandfather there when you were young? It's what you were looking at without having a name for? I mean, yeah, I was aware of of mushrooms in the forest. Mushrooms, yeah. (laughs) Especially when, you know, everybody, like, we see these and they're so magical and and mystical and uh, and colorful. And, you know, it's a special part of the forest. But I didn't really understand when, as a child, you know, what what they did in the forest. I just knew they were, you know, a part of the forest, an integral part of the forest. And it's fascinating, um, as I also learned from you, that this, this kind of Darwinian approach to forest management f- did f- only focus on fungi that are pathogens, and that is a reality. But not what you saw is this this fungus root that 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 under a single footstep there can be hundreds of kilometers of yeah. how do you say mycelium mycelium mycelium. Um, it was so much more complex again than. The thing growing above ground that our eyes could perceive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're right. Like we, you know, foresters were very much focused on the pathogens because they kill trees. And yeah. there was huge efforts to get them, you know, to to reduce that mortality due to pathogens. And, and, they, and these kind of crazy forest practices where, you know, where if there was this one pathogen, Armillaria ostoyoi, the foresters, we would, you know, the practice was to pull the stumps out of the soil, like literally take these huge machines and rip these stumps out of the soil so the roots were exposed, killing the pathogens, which just is a really good example of the extent, you know, that that we would go to in order to, to uh, create these, you know, so-called productive environments for trees to grow and be for stands to be fully, what we call fully stocked with fast-growing mm-hmm. crop trees. But yes, yeah. and some people at the same time though there was there was this growing understanding of these other kinds of fungi. So there there are at least three other groups of what one of which is the mycorrhizal fungi, which mm-hmm. are these helper fungi that I started to study. And you also found that killing the mycorrhizal fungi also killed trees. Yeah, so so mycorrhizal fungi, you know, there are thousands and thousands of species in the world, you know. Um and uh, when when and, and all of our trees, you know, all trees all over the world form these obligate relationships with them. They trees can't survive without them. So they what the trees do is they provide photosynthate or energy for the mycelium, which doesn't have chlorophyll or leaves. And the and the mycelium or the fungi grow through the soil, and they pick up nutrients and water, and then they deliver it back to the tree, and they make. They trade, and it's kind of like a market trade almost. Where mm-hmm. if the, the more photosynthate the fungus, the tree provides to the fungus, the more the fungus can grow through the soil and will return to the tree. Um, so it's a mutualism as well. Um, yeah. And yeah, and so if, in forestry practices, you know, clear cutting, spraying herbicides, getting rid of plants. If you get rid of that photosynthetic capacity, you know, the fungi die because they mm-hmm. need that. And of course, there's always some plants left after uh, uh, harvesting, and so you'll get some fungi that live. But generally, the the diversity plummets from hundreds of species in a forest to a handful. And the fungi themselves, those mycorrhizas, are what I call weedy fungi. They they don't require much carbon carbon to exist. They're kind of like the dandelions of the underground world. Ah, uh, okay. Um, 
what was that word, that phrase you used just a minute ago, that, that they have obligate relationships? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you mean by that? That means that, that you know, neither the tree nor the fungus can grow and reproduce and be fit. So fitness is the ability to reproduce and send on yeah. your genes to next generations. Um, so yeah, they, neither of them will will be able to do that. So so it's obligate. In other words, they can't exist. They have to have each other. Mm-hmm. You you also came to so so. There's this web of vitality that we that we hadn't been able to understand and. You also you use the language of of conversation of ta- of the trees talking to each other, and I I loved. There's a moment in the book, um, finding the mother tree, where you you tell the story of the first time, and you're you're using this language, but I want you to open this up for us. Like you first that you first listened to a fir tree, that you heard it with a Geiger counter. Mm-hmm. So what were you hearing? Yeah, so we'd done this experiment like you had described before, where we grew these 80 triplicates of birch, fir, Mm -hmm. and cedar. And, you know, just building on the story that birch was considered and still is a competitor in forests, a weed, um, even though it's a natural part of succession. You know, after disturbances, birch and aspen and cottonwoods, they come back, right? And they, they're they the they're like the, the healing process of, of a disturbed forest. Um, but mm-hmm. foresters viewed them as unnecessary competitors and, and, and had launched an all war on trying to get rid of these these deciduous trees and that war is still going on to this very day creating policies and practices that support that and what i wanted to know you know was you know whether they really were competitors with douglas fir and cedar um or if they had had a more sophisticated relationship so i did you know this preliminary work and i discovered you know i knew that douglas fir and paper birch shared these mycorrhizal fungi these species in common and actually uh, potentially linked them together. And I was building on earlier research done in the UK with, you know, in the laboratory where David Reed and his colleagues had found that, you know, pines grown in little clear plastic root boxes in the lab that when they were connected, they could be connected by a mycorrhizal fungus. And that yeah. when they he labeled one seedling with radioactive CO2, he could trace it going to another one. So I kind of used that same approach. I thought, does this happen in real forests? And so, yeah, so I, I, what I did is I, I, to find out if this network existed and whether or not, what was it doing? Like, were, was it facilitating any kind of relationship between paper birch and Douglas fir? Um, and so I, I labeled um, Doug, or paper birch with radioactive carbon dioxide. That means I put a plastic bag over the chute and I left that and I injected radioactive CO2 and I let the, the birch um, photosynthesize for a couple of hours, taking up that radioactive CO2. Just a couple of hours. Just a couple of That's hours. That's all it took. Yeah. That's all it yeah. took. Um, yeah. And then with the Douglas fir, I, I labeled it with a different isotope, uh, a stable isotope that's, that doesn't decay over time. It's not radioactive. It's, it's carbon-13. Um, and so, so then I could distinguish, you know, if these carbon molecules were going back and forth between these two species. Um, and so I did, you know, I labeled it for two hours as well. You put a plastic bag over Douglas for injected the C13 CO2 and then came back six days later with my Geiger counter. And the first thing was, you know, did the labeling work? Was I able to label the, the paper birch with the radioactivity? So I held the Geiger, Geiger counter up 
to it. And sure enough, it just went wild. You know, it was crackling like crazy. It had worked, right? I had totally made this paper birch hot. And so, but the clue, you know, the real, the, the real holy grail was, was it actually you know, sending any of it over to paper to Douglas fir. And so then I went over to the Douglas fir and I held the, the Geiger counter up to it. And there was a faint crackle. And that's when I knew, I knew that they were sharing carbon, which was mind blowing, right? It At that moment, I knew that it was way more sophisticated than just competing for light and reducing the photosynthesis of its neighbor. So. Right. Um, when was that? What year was that? Do you know? Well, I um, I did that experiment in 1992 okay. <laughs> and published okay. it in 1997. Right. And so, yeah, just before we move, I, that's that, your famous Nature article. But I, I love somewhere you, you said, you know, they were your, your question. So I say all the way through the book, and and this is the this is the discipline of science, right? You are. You, you raise a question, and then you go, you pursue it, right? Mm-hmm. And so your question here was, you know, how were paper Birch and Douglas for communicating? And it turns out they were conversing not only in the language of carbon, so that the language in which they were conversing, as you found, is in carbon and nitrogen and phosphorus and water mm-hmm. and defense signals and chemicals and hormones. Um, in, yeah, in 1997, you published this Nature article, which I, I well, first of all, it was it was rejected, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and and you went back and and reread it, rewrote it, and I I get the feeling that you did not expect that they would put it on the cover. <laughs> they, they put it on the cover, correct? Or they they did, yes, and and that you would you would it it, it would catapult you into visibility, um, and. And not surprisingly, because you were, you're saying things people hadn't said before in this mm-hmm. way. You and you were a woman, mm-hmm. um, in in a male-dominated field and fields, probably forestry as well as um, science. And you, um, there'd been a lot of resistance, but but you you published this work, um, and it was out of this article that. It, 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 did you use the language of wood wide web or did someone else or did nature say that? That was nature. The, the, nature they, said? Yeah, okay. they put that on the, the front cover um, uh-huh. Yeah, of, with, a, with a picture of these diverse um, forests with, you know, all these different tree species. Yeah. Do you like that? That that little shorthand. I, I I do. I mean, mm-hmm. I think the wood part is very is quite utilitarian, but it's catchy, and uh-huh. um and it's and it's become almost like a meme now, and yes, which has been highly effective in helping people think about the forest in a different way, and and you know it was also at the same time that we you know people had just discovered the World Wide Web, right? Yes, 1992, yes. right? Yeah. <laughs> so it was like, yeah. It, yeah, it was it was actually it was it was great. Mm-hmm. And what they were focusing on, yeah. Okay. Oh, sorry. Okay, is that better? Okay. Yeah, plosives is uh, is audio engineering vocabulary. <laughs> it's like... It's like mycorrhizal. Yeah. <laughs> it's the language, right? Popping your peas. <laughs> There's a lot okay. of carbon coming yeah. close to the mic. <laughs> yeah, sorry, sorry about that, Zach. Okay. <laughs> We've all done it. 
Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so what, what they were picking up on was this imagery of, of the forest having nodes and links, right? Like the internet. Um, and that, and that is, that's in there. I also feel like what you were describing is something more alive, <laughs> um, more, mm, well, it was more biological than the internet, right? I mean, you were, you mm-hmm. were talking about these hub, these nodes that are hub trees that you call mother trees and that the forest is not just wired, but wired for wisdom and yeah. care. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And actually, you know, when, when the, when the nature paper was published, um, we didn't know what the pattern of the network looked like below ground. Um, that actually, that work came a li- quite a bit later, and and I'll explain why. You know, I, I eventually in in the about ten years later, I was getting really worn down by um, by the reviews of my work and and also just the state of of the science. Like we were scientists were just kind of wringing their hands over whether this network existed because you can't see it very well with your own eyes. It's below ground. These fungal mycelium are some of them are invisible to the eye. So, and and then there was just a lot of distrust about about this communication going on or this collaboration because we were so heavily steeped in the idea that trees only compete and so um you know there was a great hand-wringing over whether or not this actually helped the plants or helped the fungi um Mm. and so i i i got a grad student kevin byler and we decided to map what that network looked like um, and that's where what emerged out of that mapping, these hubs and nodes and links and mother trees, which has, you know, it's got a story unto itself. Well, say some more, say some more. Yeah, so um, so when when we did this, so I felt like we've got to move, we've got to move this field forward or it's going to die. Um, it's going to get mired in having to prove the same things over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... I picked a forest that is a Douglas fir forest, an interior Douglas fir forest in British Columbia. These are drier forests that are what we call uneven aged in forestry language. That means that you have big old trees, but you have lots of young trees too. They grow up underneath the shade and a canopy of the old trees. And this is kind of a self-regenerating forest. And so it's got multiple ages. Um, and so in in that way, I, I felt like if we could map a network in this kind of forest, that we could get some inferences about the functioning of the network. Mm-hmm. Um, so let me explain. So when Kevin mapped the network, and, and basically what, what he did, and he did this in six different forests, is he went into areas that were about 100 feet by 100 feet in size. Um, so each forest had maybe 100 trees in it, um, or 50 to 100 trees, depending on the plot. And and he just um, he gathered up all of the the material, the cambium of every tree, the all of the fungal material he could get his hands on in the soil, searched okay. and searched and searched, and then ran DNA analysis and in particular looking for certain particular sequences, short sequences of DNA that could help us distinguish individuals from each other. So individuals of trees from each other, which is easy because you can see that, but the fungi, it's not so easy. And we needed to do that in order to know whether an individual fungus would be linking two trees together. 
Um, and so he made, out of this data, he made the, this map and it showed this incredible, this was incredible that what we it's had. It's so interesting, isn't it, that, that that idea right now, it feels so interesting that that idea was so shocking, you know, so that, that, right, that it had, that it, that it was so new. Yeah, and the techniques were brand new too, right? Okay. Like molecular yeah. techniques had been right. d- developing through the '90s, and then we the happened DNA. To the DNA, and then this yeah. this other technique about looking at microsatellites, these little short sequences of DNA that yeah. was hugely laborious, and it just so happened that two labs had developed microsatellites for Douglas fir and for this one fungus that we were yeah. looking at, Rhizopogon, and so we used those brand new tools and took it to the forest, and we made this map and. Uh, yeah, it was all coming together like as a science was advancing. Yeah. Um, I think I interrupted you though. Were you going to say more about what he he he, so he, he found. had that he saw that? Yeah. What yeah. He found. What, what he found. So so just to give context. So mm-hmm. so in this forest, you know, there's about say a hundred species. We estimated about a hundred species of fungi in these little patches of forest that were mycorrhizal fungi. He, we looked at two sister species of one fungal species, Rhizopogon. So we looked at a tiny, tiny fraction. And what we found <laughs> was that every tree was connected to every other tree by this one fungal or these two sister species of this one species alone. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine if we'd mapped all hundred? It would have been like <laughs> incredible. Right, um, right. So, so every tree is linked to every other tree. All the little trinks are trees, the, the seedlings, the saplings are all linked into the networks that these old trees had established through their lifetime. And that these the biggest, oldest trees were the hubs of the network. They were the nuclei. They were what everything else was linked into. And they were linked to each other, these other smaller nodes as well. But the biggest linkers were, were these big old trees. Mm. And that's, that's kind of, it makes sense because the big old trees have big root systems. They've got many points of contact. And they have great big photosynthetic crowns that can, that's, you know, basically transmit energy into the ground that feeds the network. Um, and so, you know, the interpretation was that these seedlings, the seedlings, the young regeneration had had regenerated within the network of the old trees. So basically, they germinated their little, you know, root systems developed, linked into the network of the old trees within a month or two, and they started to get subsidies um, directly from the old trees, carbon and nitrogen and water, um, which we found out later. And they also... Uh, benefited from just this vast mycelium that was just like like an iceberg, right? <laughs> it yeah. was it was huge, and so they were immediately had a head start and could survive in this, you know, otherwise fairly dark forest where, um, you know, where c- there was a lot of you know photosynthetic rates were really really low with their tiny little needles. There's no right. way they right. could have survived without these subsidies, yeah. right? Well, and it's so interesting too because you were. Um, you were becoming a mother yourself in these years of your research, yes. um, uh, and 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 I and you were you. I mean, you. Let's be clear. You had to be so rigorous in your science, right, to be yeah. taken seriously. So you don't make these. You don't use these metaphors lightly or no, carelessly. Not at all. Um, and at the same time. The ex, you know, some of the qualities that you describe, some of the things that these mother trees do, absolutely mirror um, the ex, the intelligence that human beings possess in 
mothering, parenting, and mm-hmm. eldering, right? Passing mm-hmm. wisdom on, sending warning signals, aiding others through sickness and distress, delivering nutrients. Um, yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, you've hit on exactly, you know, this kind of the struggle as a young scientist trying to, you know, establish their credibility in this very, you know, competitive and uh, critical field um, and using the language that was only accepted at the time. If you didn't do that, you would be tossed out and tossed to the dogs. Um, and so I had to, and I never even considered, you know, as a 30-year-old as a or, you know, as I was developing my 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 creds uh, of of ever using language like mother trees or communication i knew i would get tossed to the dogs and yeah, um, yeah. and so it was with a great deal of um you know trepidation but also uh to to use this language and and i am getting a lot of backlash over it uh, especially since the book has been published but oh you are again now still yes i am okay. um, mm-hmm. but to me i, I would I, we're at the point where we have to i feel you know i felt it was really important we've got to move beyond this right we've yeah. got to embrace our place in nature as one with nature and that these trees you know are you know they evolved long before we did and um and and these uh these networks for example the the biological neural networks which we found um they exist you know throughout nature these patterns mm-hmm. exist throughout nature because they're efficient at moving stuff around at communication and they're resilient and they're meant to you know to to help us be reproductive societies well right and as you say we are of nature we're not we're not we're not separate and 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 also it feels important to me that um and i don't see people pointing this out when they talk about your work that the the larger context but one of the larger contexts of this is that that there is within the field of evolutionary biology um and within you know this this our generation of science uh, and humanity is 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 growing up and complicating and deepening that idea. And as you pointed out a minute ago, we've also been working with a simplified idea of what Darwin said, right? Yes. But we're we've evolutionary biology in 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 its many fields has been tempering and complicating and qualifying this idea that competition alone is the primary engine of evolution mm-hmm. um, and that that a human superpower is cooperation that that has also led to the flour that leads to flourishing groups and the flourishing of our species and the language you used you know the the qualities of the forest of reciprocity and mutuality are also qualities of high functioning humans and yes. that's that's a science that is a scientific observation in yes. our generation Yes. Yes. I mean, you know, these, you know, social systems and human social systems, you know, ecosystems, um, they're built fundamentally in similar ways. They're what scientists are now calling complex adaptive systems. And that complexity has a pattern and that pattern is highly evolved. Um, And then how the how that system works, like through through these networks, um, whether you're in a human social network or a, a fungal network in the forest, you know, it's evolved to 
you know, to basically to propagate species, you know, which I don't disagree with, you know, with Darwinism in, in that way, in that, you know, yes, species want to survive and reproduce, but the way they do it is much more sophisticated than we've thought about. And now, or, you know, as, or that we've developed our, uh, our science based on, but now I think even now it's becoming more mainstream known that, you know, endosymbiosis has been highly important in, in collaboration. Yeah, and cooperation. that was, and I think, is that, was that a, the term that Lynn Margulis initially uh, coined the endo yes. oh, endosymbiosis. So describe what that is. Yeah. So what that, the meaning of that word is. Yeah. Yeah. So that's um, you know in the evolution of eukaryotic cells and and, and prokaryotic cells as well. Um, what we've discovered now, or or scientists have discovered, is that is that it, it really that evolution involved you know the. In the engulfing of of you know one organism of another, and that that led to the development mm. of organelles like mitochondria, um, and and so now we know that it's not just the evolution of a species by itself. It's actually the, the, this, and so that endosymbiosis means it's a symbiosis. They live together. That's what symbiosis means. Right, Endo right. means like the engulfing and you know creating the eukaryotic cell with a nucleus and and ribosomes and you know and, and all the other organelles that are really an evolution of of this this you know of this endosymbiosis this collaboration this cooperation and even mm. um you know even in the human genome as we've discovered that that we are full of you know dna that is from other organisms viruses right. and bacteria right. and right. yeah so now yeah. it's now it's it's actually accepted uh, that that this is you know this has been fundamental to evolution but it did take a long time and i think Lino margulis took a lot of heat for, yeah. for her ideas. She did, like you. She was ridiculed for a long time. And I, um, you know, it seems to me that just as we're speaking, this it seems to me, you know, with the, with the, the kind of, the kind of catchphrase, like the the um, the soundbite of Darwinianism has been survival of the fittest. But what what this what you have been looking at in the forest and what. I feel like more of our attention, including scientific attention, is going towards now is what what is the nature of vitality and flourishing, um, not mere survival. Yeah. yeah, that's such a great point. You know, um, yeah, I mean, a fit a fit organism puts on biomass, right? They grow, they, they flourish. They don't just merely survive. And, you know, that, that's such a, I, I really enjoy it. I'm really glad that you brought that up because, um, you know, when we, when we manage ecosystems, when I look at forestry practices or agriculture practices or, you know, fishing, or, it's like we manage them just to survive. We don't manage them yeah. to flourish. We push okay. them to the brink of collapse, right? Take as much as we possibly can. And I think, yeah, I think we need to step away and look at how all interrelated this science is with this management and, you know, how we've, how, what shape we're in right now, the trajectory that we're on. These things are all connected together. Yeah. And just, you know, just briefly, just to, before we move on from here, I mean, and other, other, I'd say other emergent fields that again are reflecting this kind of way of seeing and naming and understanding would be, um, you know, are the discovery. I'm putting that quote unquote of the microbiome, right? Of this, mm-hmm. <laughs> of this community um, that is at the center of the human body, mm-hmm. um, in a way we never understood. But also brain science, because one of the things you 
saw, have seen in the forest is that that um, that the chemicals that are being transmitted are identical to our neurotransmitters, that these processes that we've only recently been able to map in the human brain, it's, 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 it sounds like it's the same process or it's a, it's a kindred process to that. It, it, they have similarities. It is, is uh, hard to ignore. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so, yeah, I mean, when I did my studies with my students, we were we were looking at carbon and nitrogen and water and how it's moving between plants and then looking at the stoichiometry of of these chemicals, these these elements moving together. And I realized, you know, the stoichiometry was was the same as is glutamate, you know, of carbon and nitrogen. And I'm just like, oh, you know, <laughs> it's glutamate that's moving through these. Or is it? And and, and what and say what glutamate is? Glutamate is is an amino acid. It's got carbon mm-hmm. and nitrogen in it. Um, and and it happens to also be a a, a neuro, you know it's one of our neurotransmitters. Yeah, so um, it's essential in our bodies as well. Yes, yeah. and so I. It's actually other people who were looking at what was moving through the, like, you know, how as scientists, they have their their scales that they work at. I do cross scales, but I don't really cross into the scale of what the molecules are. Um, I go from the forest down to these, to networks, but I, I, I have to rely on other scientists to do that more molecular, okay. detailed biochemical work. And so other people had discovered that glutamate was one of the main amino mm. acids that actually moves through networks. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. And and something that you also along the way um realized is that this way of seeing and redefining, you know, what feels like discovery to us um and is being discovered and kind of named in terms of scientific and scientific vocabulary is actually in some ways, you could say that it's it's modern science joining, meeting intelligence that has been there in traditional societies, in aboriginal societies. Mm-hmm. Um, so there have been humans who understood, didn't have this particular language, um, but that that's also a conversation you've been having kind of around the edges of your of your own research. Is that mm-hmm. correct? It is. You know, I've had such great fortune to, you know, in the last decade to to work with Aboriginal scientists and, and Aboriginal people. Um, I got a, a postdoc, Dr. Teresa Ryan, who is a, a salmon fishery scientist. And I just started, you know, I, w- I was, I'd been struggling so much in this Western science sphere with my colleagues and publishing my work and, and, and fighting, you know, to get the interpretations accepted, you know, of, of collaboration and wholeness of the ecosystems. And I just started talking to her and she's like, well, our worldview is that we are part of these ecosystems, that we are all connected together, um, and that we're, you know, you can't separate, we can't be separated from each other, that, um, and, 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 and that, yeah, collaboration is, is all part of it, you know, that, that the, the world is an entwined place. And she brought, she even, you know, showed me this, these, this oral history and writings by a, a man, Subie, Bruce Miller of the Snohomish Nation, and he had written about these fungal networks in the soil. And, <laughs> and that was before these discoveries and, and, and how his people had known about these networks and how it kept the forest strong for millennia. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, we've been, we're so 
narrow. <laughs> We've been so narrowly focused on on reductionist science, pulling things apart and then trying to understand them, that we lost the you know we lost our way to to actually see these as whole systems. And so I was I felt so suddenly accepted. You know, I felt like mm-hmm. I, I belong again. You know, mm-hmm. I I I don't th- I don't feel like I'm going to get. You know, my my science is going to be now. I need to now. I need to get on track with really moving it forward and not fighting. You know, fighting the criticism. I need to just move forward, and uh, yeah, that was such an, a blessing for me. It's just opened mm-hmm. up my whole world. And now, you know, I'm working, you know, a lot with Aboriginal people and just opening up. You know, how do we work together? And mm-hmm. and viewing, you know, Western science is really just the little sister to Aboriginal science, which has been going on for millennia. <laughs> right. For so much longer, yeah. There was some place also you've been talking about some of your newer work in the near the end of the book about um, understanding the connection between fish and rivers mm-hmm. and inland forests, and that that's also a connection that has long been made yeah. um, in these other bodies of intelligence and and practice. Yeah. So I'm, you know, I've had. Uh, I'm working with the Hiltzik Nation, which is in the mid-coast region of British Columbia. And um, the Hiltzik have a, a large, large territory. They're, they're actually a combination of many nations. Um, but th- that's another story. But um, So we work with the Hiltzik Nation in going to a number of watersheds. Um, and we were able to, that had different salmon runs. And this is a long, long story, but basically what we, we were after is we wanted to understand the role of salmon in forest productivity and building on work of the Aboriginal people who knew about these connections between salmon trees and themselves, um, and also some earlier Western science that had, you know, disco- made discoveries that, that salmon nitrogen was inside of trees and plants and insects. And so we wanted to know what was the pathway. Yeah, Yeah. it is is absolutely amazing. Yeah. You know, so we were embarking on what is the pathway? How does it, how does the salmon get into these trees? And so that's, yeah, we've been unraveling that story. Mm. Yeah, that's amazing. You know, there's, there's just this amazing, interesting juxtaposition that I, when I was taking notes on, there's a moment in your book where, you know, you, you, you know, you as you say, it's about a half century of logging and forest management that's been overturned, and that's such a small sliver of time compared to the intel- deep intelligence about these of living in forests mm-hmm. that's out there. But um, but you were pointing out to somebody, to a forest manager, um, new data on how mixed forests actually are healthier forests, mm-hmm. rather than just uh, focusing on the the you know well and so what he said to you describes what you so he said well that may be true but let's face it the birch here has no value in the market which is just this very <laughs> simplistic way and we've been living but the the devastation of that right i mean in the the at the beginning of your book the mother tree you, you have this quote from rachel carson which is but man is part of nature mm-hmm. and his war against nature is inevitably a war against himself mm-hmm. yeah um and the war has been intense <laughs> and it's and mm-hmm. it's still going on um you know it, you know forest practices today even the act of clear cutting and you know we opened by 
talking about how I grew up in the province of old-growth forests. Now it's a province of clear-cuts um, with a few old-growth forests left. You know, the valley-bottom old-growth forests, the really rich, iconic, hugely productive forests, there's only 3% left in British Columbia. Um, mm -hmm. And this is a, a consequence of, of, of not recognizing uh, you know, the absolute vitality or essential vitality of the forest and how it underpins our very lives. Our, our, there are life support systems, you know. <laughs> they cycle water, they cycle air, they produce oxygen, they cycle mm -hmm. nutrients, they store carbon. They're the homes of so many, you know, our creatures. And and yet we've treated them so shabbily, you know, just to think that we've, we've only got that much left. And it's not just British Columbia. It's been happening for the last, you know, few centuries mm -hmm. that yeah. we've been, you know, basically uh, pushing these ecosystems to the point of collapsing them. Um, yeah, and, and it does, it comes from this very simple view that these forests are there for us to use and to uh, to feed our own desires and needs and consumptions and, and, and our population growth. And um, and and unfortunately, you know, we haven't had been respectful. We haven't. We, I mean, of course, you know, we've always lived in forests for millennia. Indigenous people have, and you know, and we all we continue to, and we always will. Um, but there is a respectful way to live in the forest, and I think there is lots of evidence and practices, you know, of of, of respectful practices of, you know, for example, you know, burning of of understories to create habitat for animals and plants to support our lives um, and we stopped that because we thought oh if we stop burning and we just keep the forest for us to, to log ourselves and protect our property then we'll have more and more for us in the future well that sure has come back to bite us in a very difficult way because yeah. you know because now we have you know these mega fires which are a consequence of climate change and fire suppression and so yeah, these things do come back at us if we don't completely understand or if we don't re acknowledge and respect, you know, the complexity of the system. We make, you know, enormous consequential mistakes. Yeah. Something that that um that you that you often have been fascinated and amazed by uh and is also the the self-healing properties mm -hmm. of the forest and that these are regenerative systems, um, and I mean, there's you know, you're in your book. You really do also, you know, like the best books. I think you're telling multiple stories mm -hmm. together, and so the story of the science unfolding, the understanding unfolding, and also what you were living through as a human being, mm -hmm. um, and. Um, you you did um, get you did have cancer, mm -hmm. and I guess is this right? I only saw this in one place that it's possible that research you were doing on herbicides mm -hmm. contributed to well, your breast cancer. Yeah, I don't know, but I uh -huh. certainly I worked a lot with herbicides early on because that was how I was learning how to be a scientist, and that was what yeah. you know the practices of the day were. That's what they were testing, and so I became part of. Do these things work? What do they do? Yeah, so it could be. And, it's and possible. I, it's possible, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, and I just, I saw you, again, the way I think of this is not anthropomorphizing, but actually applying, you know, letting different kinds of intelligence be in a reciprocal relationship, right? And mm -hmm. so 
So you experienced, you know, somewhere you said about yourself, you started to understand that we are made for recovery. Mm-hmm. And that, that this was, that there, there, there were echoes there with the regenerative system that is a forest that you were studying and, mm-hmm. and living in. Yeah. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, that was an incredible learning moment for me, um, you know, in a, in a very personal and visceral way. I mean, I was, you know, I, I got breast cancer. I was, it wasn't great, great. It had spread to my lymph nodes. I, I was, um, you know, I was facing death and I had to really embrace all that I could to survive. My kids were 10 and 12 at the time, or 12 and 14. And... I needed to be there for them, and I, I was worried that I might not be, and I had to do anything I could. And I learned, you know, I actually learned from my doctors, I learned from my friends, all the other women going through chemo, my family, and we all, you know, we came together as a system, as a system, really, as as a group um, that that helped. You know, we were helping each other. You know, just as a, an example, my I, I call it my 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 BFS, my breastless friends forever. We all lost our breasts, <laughs> okay. and uh, yeah. you know, we all went through chemo together. We all mm. were. It was really really hard, and the way we supported each other by you know just being there always and still today, ten you know almost ten years later, these are some of my best friends, and we we're constantly in contact about. About, and, and it's like the network, right? It's a reinforcing, resilient network. It, it's regenerative. It helps you be happy and healthy. Um, and, and, uh, and, and, you know, in the forest, that's how forests regenerate, as we talked about, how seedlings establish within the network of this collaborative system. You know, the old trees are nurturing them and bringing them up. And this is exactly how our own social systems work and what keeps us healthy and alive and productive and, and happy, too. Hmm. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated with this. With the, with the language of ecosystem and just, you know, it's about, that word is about a hundred years old in our vocabulary. And strangely, I think it takes about a century for some really tectonic shift in understanding to start to penetrate. You know, I mean, just mm-hmm. like Einstein completely reframed the nature of time, but we're still living in this clockwork world because <laughs> we haven't caught up yet. Yeah. And, um, and it does feel to me like, like ecosystem is a total reframing and we're just catching up in all these ways we've been talking about learning about the ecosystem and our bodies and as you said with new cutting edge scientific tools seeing Mm -hmm. the ecosystem um in in something like a forest i just want to read something you wrote um just this incredible passage um from your book um and, you know, one of the questions you ask, you've talked of it, one way you describe is that you, that what you be- have become, I think this is not what you expected to become, is a sleuth of what it takes to heal the natural world. <laughs> and um, I just want to read this passage and let's talk about what the forest might have to teach us as a civil society, because mm-hmm. I, it's, it, it, it Well, it actually kind of jumps out without needing to be pointed out. So here you wrote, We can think of an ecosystem of wolves, caribou, trees, and fungi creating biodiversity, just as an orchestra of woodwind, brass, percussion, and string musicians assemble into a symphony. 
Or our brains, composed of neurons, axons, and neurotransmitters, produce thought and compassion. Or the way brothers and sisters join to overcome a trauma like illness or death, the whole greater than the sum of the parts. Mm-hmm. The cohesion of biodiversity in a forest, the musicians in an orchestra, the members of a family growing through conversation and feedback, through memories and learning from the past, even if chaotic and unpredictable, leveraging scarce resources to thrive. Through this cohesion, our systems develop into something whole and resilient. They are complex, self-organizing. They have the hallmarks of intelligence. Recognizing that forest ecosystems, like societies, have these elements of intelligence helps us leave behind old notions that they are inert, simple, linear, and predictable. Notions that have helped fuel the justification for rapid exploitation that has risked the future existence of creatures in the forest systems. Um, you know, one, one, yeah, so why do forests work like civil societies? Or let me ask you the question this way. How does the, this understanding, this imaginative shift to seeing ecosystem rather than a system of competition and scarcity. Um, How does that make you think differently? Or how do you think that offers new intelligence for our thinking about something like like hierarchy and structure or even movement building? I mean, are these things that you think about as you read the news, live in this world? Of course I do, yes. (laughs) I mean, the parallels are so strong and um, we have so much to learn, you know, from from our from the natural systems that exist, um, to try to you know to to improve our own you know social system and outcomes. Um, but but yeah, I mean, you know these 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 fungal networks, these microbial networks, uh, uh, landscapes that are networks. Um, you know how birds, you know. F- network together and using each other's nests, um, nest webs, yeah. uh, m- microbial biofilms, like, you know, en- endophytes inside of plants. Like, <laughs> you know, these things are all working together to create this, you know, incredibly uh, emergent system that is, you know, vital and healthy and and creates a biosphere that we, that is balanced and that we live in and thrive in. And, 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 all those creatures working together have such sophisticated ways of interacting, um, and yet, you know, in our in our own social society, we sort of swing back and forth sometimes, right? Politically, you know, where you know we'll emphasize, um, you know, the social network, and then we and even when when Darwin was talking about competition, that was when capitalism that was the birth time of capitalism, yeah, and that yeah. influenced his writing, and his writing probably influenced the thinkers of that of capitalism at that time, and and we swung into this direction of where you know competition and hierarchies were so important that um, that you know the the, the dominant uh, figure would would yeah. it become enriched. 
enriched and that they would, you know, maybe they would look after the rest. <laughs> um, but we know now that... Or that, they would exploit them. I mean, it influence Marx, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or exploit yeah. them, right? Mm-hmm. Or trickle-down mm-hmm. economics was, you know, yeah. the rich will look after the poor. And, and it doesn't mm-hmm. work, right? We It doesn't work because we need all these sophisticated right. ways of, of relating with one another and having each other's back and looking after our, you know the small nodes in the network as well as the large ones and um you know and i think bringing out you know in engendering a healthy civil society brings all of us forward right we all benefit from that just like in a forest you know that diverse beautiful vital forest comes from you know from this collaboration and competition and all these interactions of of all these species being able to live together and thrive with each other yeah there was a there is a, a couple sentences um, where you're talking about for the forest, and you're you're talking about the you know eliminating mixed forests, um, and it just sounds to me like you, it's it's such an analogy for for societal threat. So you said overestimating the threat of a few birch neighbors could bring unexpected consequences potentially setting the forest up for a vulnerable future where lowered biodiversity might reduce productivity, increase risk of poor health, and augment the spread of fire. Mm-hmm. What we do in these early years of development, after all, determines future resilience, just as it does with children. But I mean, in, that, in those sentences where you are, again, as a scientist, you know, describing what you see in a natural ecosystem, are are actually descriptors of what we know about social consequences mm-hmm. of 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 um of of disregarding biodiversity or diversity mm-hmm. um oppression of, yeah yeah and of of um of overestimating threat actually creating setting up for a vulnerable future mm-hmm. and decreasing health i mean it's so fascinating yeah, you know, uh, I remember, you know, back when I was, you know, having, you know, having these discussions with these traditional foresters, and I kept saying to them, you know, we're setting ourselves up for a risky future by 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 short circuiting uh, succession, natural succession, the natural diversity of the forest and how it develops, and and they're they're saying no, you know, if you keep all these plants, that's a risky future. We what we have is we want a low risk, predictable future where we only have these you know Douglas firs that we're gonna you know grow and ship whatever you know it it was such backwards thinking to me and flipped around right and and yet you know they they were kind of in this echo chamber of reinforcement among them themselves and you know and also you know, not just among themselves but in other sectors of society as well like um, yeah yeah how we can go get so on the wrong track <laughs> yeah it's so resonant of some of the cultural conversations we have right yeah, I mean you just have to change a few words but you could translate it directly yes I, I kept thinking when I was reading you about a conversation I was in a few years ago with a bunch of people who were in their 20s and there was a breakout group, and the title of it was Communal Scaling, which I was just fascinated by. It's not even language I've heard before. Mm-hmm. And I went to that, and um, I heard this really different way of thinking about 
about scaling than I, than I grew up with, right? Being born in the late 20th century, um, or almost mid 20th century. Um, and, and they were talking about, you know, communal scaling would mean that everything does, it wouldn't just be about getting bigger, right? Scaling might be about going deeper. Communal scaling would be about vulnerabilities and resilience getting interconnected. It would be, it would mean that everything wouldn't just get bigger and bigger. There would be things that got smaller. There would be things that died. And their learnings would be incorporated into the ongoing vitality. And in mm-hmm. some ways, that is also, like, in some ways, I look back at that and I think about the intelligence and the vision and that conversation was is very much reflected in what you've learned about how forest ecosystems mm-hmm. work. Yeah. I mean, forests are really dynamic places, just, just like our own societies. And, and it mm-hmm. does involve, um, it involves death. It involves um, pulling back. It involves learning or redirecting your resources sometimes to learn something new. Um, so it's not always about growth. You, right. You know, it's not always about, you know, becoming bigger and better and in in a traditional or a visible way that you know you might measure as wealth for example or or power um you know the some the most powerful parts of our of our social systems can be you know the the elder that has um you know aged and um and is guiding you know younger people or guiding you know guiding their culture and and yet they can be almost invisible in in the hierarchy of of our social system Mm um in forests the same thing like these the the below ground world is like a perfect example of that we don't see it we don't necessarily unless you're looking below ground um and here it's doing all the fundamental work right you know these bacteria the fungi the archaea (laughs) they're the ones that are cycling you know cycling the carbon decomposing things cycling nitrogen you know filtering water building soil soil structure and the caregivers of the forest they are they're the fundamental Fundamental yeah. foundation of the forest, They're the legacy mm. of the forest that helps move mm. it forward. Mm. There's this very quiet, there's these quiet sentences that I, I just want to, you know, put back from you again. There is a necessary wisdom in the give and take of nature. It's quiet agreements and search for balance. There is an extraordinary generosity. It's, yeah, you know, it... it you know, I um, I think I'm I'm I think about there's been this long discussion about selection, right? Natural selection, and and about you know competition, as we've talked about, and and how um, and and I've struggled to try to fit how I think into these you know these accepted views of how selection, natural selection, works, and and the way. I've come that I see it now. I've articulated it in, in in my mind, and is that you know these species, individuals are so interdependent. You know, species of di- completely different species, even in you know different kingdoms. Um, <laughs> um, that that you know 
it, it is this big microbiome. It's of all these creatures yeah. working together, and it, it enhances the fitness of each one. You, you know that, and now we understand in for in forestry, it's like we've rediscovered that biodiversity is correlated with productivity and health, right? And now it's like you know th those are getting into the journals, whereas you know twenty years ago it was like people were struggling to show these relationships. But that's yeah. exactly what I was trying to, you know to articulate was that you know species they don't live in isolation it is a world of give and take it is a, a relationship of silent um agreements between species they we they, we all need each other to create these healthy systems that you know it it yeah i can't emphasize that enough that the community you know the ecosystem is 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 a complex place and it, it's about working together that the parts are, are you know, it, 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 they're, it's not just about the parts. They're more than the sum of the parts. Yeah. And there's a way that that, that just lands at least in some of us as, as common sense, mm -hmm. which is also fascinating because given how much <laughs> rigorous work you had to do to be able to formulate those ideas yeah. um, inside yeah. the field. Yeah, I mean, maybe we'll look back, you know, we'll, we will look back on this period and go, what were we thinking? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. it's pervasive, right? Like, we, mm -hmm. like agriculture, look at agriculture, it's going through transformations away from yeah. industrial, high input agriculture to, to more regenerative agriculture. And, yeah. and some systems are almost irretrievable now that we've we've hammered them so hard with this kind of thinking. Like, for example, the the the, the crash of our salmon populations. You know, we we just we just we couldn't. Well, we need to really regenerate these systems so that and change our thinking so that we can that we that they can be healthy again. Yeah. Um, I, I want to ask you a couple of less serious questions, just things I'm really curious about, but I suspect they might be related to this. So, well, one of them is there's so many huckleberries in your stories and I have never eaten a huckleberry. So I just want you to tell me what it is. You've never eaten a huckleberry? I don't think so. I don't well, think I've ever seen a huckleberry or been offered okay. one. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, well, blueberries. Yeah. Are, you've had blueberries, have you? Is a huckleberry a blueberry? It's a huckleberry. Yeah. Oh, okay. Good. Yes. All right. Well, yep. that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. I had that for breakfast. That's okay, okay, there you go. They're they're all in the same genus called vaccinium. I see. Yeah. It's a category. Okay, it's, good. It's, yes. All right. Well, here's another one. Um, in the book, you have a lot of wonderful photographs, starting with photographs when you were a child of your family, and all the way through. And something that you do in here, and I just think there must be a reason for it, is... Um, you know, often when you have a picture, when we show photographs, we'll name the ages of children, right? So here's the first one in the book, I think. It's, it's, your, it's your siblings and your mother, and you say, Kelly, three, Robin, seven, or, um, and mom, Ellen, June, 29, I'm five. And then all the way through the book, you know, so you, you, you name the, the ages of all the adults, right? So mm -hmm. it's not just the five-year-old, it's the 89-year-old. Mm -hmm. And there's something, it just, it made me sit up and think about the generations in a different way. And, you know, anyway, is there a reason that you did that? Well, I, you know, I, I, I wanted to tell the story of, of how my life was so essential to the questions I asked in my science. And I wanted to tell that story, you know, in a, in a way that people could understand and follow, make it 
you know, make it simple. And so you could trace what was happening. I wanted, I wanted people to realize that that this scientific endeavor was really a, a, li- a life lived. And, and it wasn't just my life, it was generations that came before me, and the generations that come after me were all linked together. And I, I felt that that might help um, people to make you know, see that line that if you want to call it a line, it's not really a line. It's like, it's kind of a cycle. Um, but yeah, yeah. I, I felt like it was a good touch point, a touchstone for people to really grasp the development of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, a word that you use a lot in your writing and when you're talking about the work you're doing is um, humus. You do, you say it that way, right? Yes. Um, and um at some point, I, in the last couple of years, I, I think it was after I read Andrea Wolf's book, uh, The Invention of Nature, about Alexander von Humboldt. I don't know if you read that, but uh, but there's yeah, it's a wonderful. It's it's really about the trajectory of, you know, going from natural philosophy, where science was saw itself as it was multidisciplinary and connected to all kinds of other disciplines, like um, that that we don't consider to be science now, um, and. Anyway, that language of humus, and I started thinking how interesting it was that the root of humus and human mm-hmm. and also humor, <laughs> how those three words yeah. are so... And there was, there's this line of Henry David Thoreau and Walden, um, shall I not have intelligence with the earth? Am I not partly leaves and vegetable mold, which is, I guess, a mm-hmm. way to talk about humus, myself, um, I don't know. I've never had anybody to talk to about that with. But. No, I mean, that that's really brilliant of you. Those, I mean, those root words are, you know, it's connected together. The, the humus is the foundation of the forest. It's it's where the decay happens. It where, it's where the, the nutrients are. It's like it's where most of the carbon in the soil is. It's, it's an absolutely fundamental part of the being of the forest. And humor, for example, is that is our is also our you know, what makes us fundamentally happy and interesting people and mm. gives us, you know, makes us relax and, and enjoy our lives, happiness, um, to be human. <laughs> and and I, I love that you've made that linkage together. That That is brilliant. I love it. Oh. <laughs> okay, well, thank you. I'm happy to discuss it with someone. Um, yeah, I mean, if I ask you, through... This life, um, this professional life, but also a, a human life that you've spent, um, you know, in the forest, with the forest, uh, not just with the forest, but that as your passionate focus. Um, how would you talk about how that has shaped and evolved and maybe right now, today, continues to evolve your understanding of what it means to be human? Yeah, you know, I this... <laughs> And I think that we all kind of struggle with that, right? That's kind of our life's work is to understand, you know, what is it to be human? What is the meaning of my life? Um, And and I think I've learned so much from, you know, and we go through, you know, we go through these changes, these dramatic changes at different points in our life. And I I think as as a child, you know, I didn't really think about it that much other than that I just loved, <laughs> I just loved this place that was my my home, which was the forest. Mm. And and it, then it, you know, and then I, I went through all of these, you know, this incre- 
incredible journeys of, and not always fun, right? Like a lot of difficulty, no. a lot of yeah. um, frustration and second, you know, get second guessing myself and, you know, it, and yet out of it, I've grown into a bigger or, or a, a more whole person myself. Um, and maybe I'm back to where I was as a kid, right? Like to enjoy, just be happy with, you know, with this whole life that I have that, you know, just being with it, isn't that the meaning of life is to is to, to have a meaning, have a meaningful life that is happy. Um, that is what I was when I started. And that's what I am right now. And but the journey in between was full of twists and turns and, you know, and uh, emotions and wondering and where am I going? And yet here I've landed back where I started, <laughs> which is a wonderful place to be. Yeah. And, you know, you, you, you have such I mean, I'm, I, you know, we just mentioned that word humor and, and it, 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 it's you have such a good cheer, I would say, both in spite of and because of what you see. Um, the intelligence of nature, the, the you know, um, the intelligent, the innate intelligence we have the capacity to, to possess. Um, somewhere you said the, you know, you've said the forest is wired for wisdom, which is such mm-hmm. an intriguing idea. I mean, do you, and I know, I mean, there you are in British Columbia and, and we're speaking, we're speaking in a time in which, um, yeah, f- fires and the the consequences of living the way we've been living are, are really coming home, mm-hmm. um, are intensifying. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wonder, I, yeah, I, but I feel you, I feel like of you hold on to all the complexity you also hold on to this capacity for regeneration and self-healing that you've seen. And mm-hmm. and this, you know, you said forests are wired for wisdom. And I, mm-hmm. I, I feel like you also think we are, mm-hmm. although it's not necessarily the destination. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. You know, um, I've learned through my work in studying how systems work that they are regenerative systems. You know, they're built that way. Um, they've evolved that way. Um, you know, that, 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 you know, that there are you know that that the old help the young that the large helps the small and it, and it's and it's reciprocal um mm-hmm. and that this network this system will grow and and out of it emerges incredible stuff like the ability to sequester carbon in our ecosystems for example um mm-hmm. uh, the productivity of a for of a beautiful cathedral forest um the the sense of wonder and health and vitality you get that we get when we interact with that incredible place um mm-hmm. you know even in our own our own societies look at what we've what we've achieved and what look at the joy we've developed Listen, like going to listening to the symphony um watching our children grow like there's it's just full of joy and and uh, and we're we're built for that and and that's what gives me incredible hope and and honestly you know, hope is the only way to go, right? And, and it's also that hope is based on understanding. It's an understanding that that our ecosystems are meant to heal themselves. And and yes, there are tipping points. And yes, we do. If we don't, if we don't make changes, they can collapse, but they can also go the other direction. And I I feel like you know, with with intelligent choices, um, decision-making, intelligent leaderships, good leadership, good mother trees, um, Mm -hmm. um, that, that we can, you know, get back to, 
where we need to be from exploitation to production or regeneration, that, that the system will respond if we make those choices and it will rebuild and, and, and reorganize, self-organize again in a way that is, is going to be healthy for, you know, for the, for maybe even the human population, the human society, right? Mm. I think it, it's all, it's all there. We have all the tools. We have all the fundamental building blocks. We just need to make sh- you know, we just need to make the right, make good decisions. We have to, we have to re-self-organize as well. We do. <laughs> we, we have to get regenerative do. too. <laughs> we do have to re-self-organize, but uh-huh. we're doing it. We see it. Like, yeah. You know, you can see hope. There's hope everywhere. Mm-hmm. Mm. Oh, well, what a joy it is to speak with you. I'm so grateful for your work and um and this conversation. I think we maybe I think we might produce this but not put it on until after the summer, like early September, when people kind of wake up again. Mm-hmm. Um, so just, but this is wonderful. Well, thank you. You, you know, you've had, you asked me great questions. I mean, p- questions other people have not asked me. So thank oh. you for thinking so deeply about it. And, you know, I can tell that you've, you know, you've read deeply and widely and it shows in all your questions. So oh. thank you so much. Thank you. And um, yeah, and I, I did and will, of course, recommend the book and, uh, Appoint people to your work, and oh, what was the your new project? We didn't talk about that the the oh. mother tree project, but I'll mention that as well, so okay. that people point people to it. Um, Great, yeah. So yeah. again, thank you. Thank and you we'll so much. We'll keep you posted on when this is when this is coming out. Okay, thank, thank okay. you so much. All right. Okay. Yeah, blessings. Bye bye. You too. Bye bye. <laughs> 